Not in the world of Brahma, nor the world of gods, nor in the realm of celestial beings, not among the leaders of any class of beings is there one to equal you, O moon among men. Worshipped by the gods and sages, worshipped by the leaders of the gods, O healer of the ills of man, I too worship you, O vast-souled Lord Vivekananda. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Om Peace, Peace, Peace be unto us all. So good morning everyone. This morning uh, I'm speaking on the legacy of Vivekananda. As most of you know, it's uh, this month that we celebrate the birth anniversary of Vivekananda. Uh, later this month on the 17th, coming soon, later this week. And uh, so in honor of uh, his birth anniversary, I wanted to speak on him, and more particularly on his legacy, that is what he left for us. Um, uh, the, uh, when you think about uh, Vivekananda, uh, you can only think in large terms, in big terms. You can't think small when thinking of Swamiji, and that makes it difficult to speak about him, because when you begin to speak about him, you want to use nothing but superlatives, and it begins to sound uh, like an exaggeration, and even if not an exaggeration, it just sounds like you're going overboard. You're uh, uh, hyped on uh, oriental hyperbole or something. And uh, so uh, uh, it's always difficult to speak on Vivekananda and make it sound uh, uh, proportional because he was uh, beyond all uh, proportion. Uh, uh, his uh, being was so, uh, so vast, as Ramakrishna himself said, as others uh, who knew him said. So to think about Vivekananda is <clears throat> to think about something like a huge uh, ocean liner of uh, something beyond our uh, uh, normal uh, uh, imagination. But then an ocean liner, of course, is something which is material, something which is dead and insentient. Powerful, huge, but uh, dead. And Vivekananda was anything but that. Or to think about Vivekananda is to think about uh, a lion, uh, the Vedanta Kesari, the lion of uh, Vedanta. Uh, because of his uh, fearless nature. It's not to think of a, lep uh, a leopard or a tiger because they uh, uh, kill by stealth, but a lion sits out in the open savanna. Uh, even in India, where they have both uh, uh, tigers and uh, lions, Africa just has lions, but India has both, 
there the yeah, lion of Vedanta they speak of, not the tiger of Vedanta, because the lion, again, is fearless. The <clears throat> lion is king of the jungle. The lion has no fear of anything, just sits out in the open savanna. Uh, and so Vivekananda, uh, because of his, uh, the fearless nature of him, the lion comes to mind. But then the lion also is filled with the cruelty. The lion uh, makes others afraid. Vivekananda didn't make others afraid. Vivekananda inspired in others the fearlessness which he himself exhibited. And so that analogy also fails. And so all analogies with him, I think, are bound uh, to fail. When speaking about uh, him and his uh, 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 legacy, uh, we think of we can think of uh, uh, saints and great uh, world teachers of the past, and think of Vivekananda as another icon to put on the altar. Well, I bow to Christ, I bow to Buddha, I bow to Ramakrishna, I bow to uh, Krishna, uh, Rama, all of these, and uh, let's put Vivekananda there on the altar also. Uh, but that, uh, just to do that is to uh, uh, do him a disservice because Vivekananda didn't come to sit on an altar and to receive worship. He himself said that Ramakrishna and I didn't come uh, to uh, receive worship from others. Vivekananda came in order, I think, I'm convinced, came to change the very current of world, uh, uh, the very current of civilization the very direction of uh, civilization. He didn't come for anything smaller than that. And uh, so uh, um, even among great saints, uh, he uh, in particular is not one of just uh, deserving to just be put, placed on an altar and respected. No, he came to uh, get involved in the very workings of the world, the very, uh, the very uh, direction of society. <coughs> sometimes, <coughs> sometimes people wonder um, about the apparent difference between Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. Uh, well, the more I've seen the two of them, the more I see similarity and not a difference. And whatever difference is there is a difference more of capacity in uh, different directions. Ramakrishna, as Vivekananda came, to, to generate this tremendous uh, spiritual power to develop this tremendous spiritual power, to leave his life as an example uh, for posterity. And Vivekananda came to give direction to that power which Ramakrishna generated, that power which Ramakrishna released. Vivekananda came, as Ramakrishna himself indicated on various occasions, to give direction to that power. As Swamiji said, Ramakrishna was content to live that great life. And uh, I, Vivekananda, was given to interpret it. Uh, Ramakrishna, one of the wonderful incidents, one of many, many wonderful incidents from his life that uh, I always come back to, is uh, the incident where Fridoy, his nephew, came to Dakshineshwar one day leading a small, a young calf by a tether. And Ramakrishna said, well, Fridoy, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing with this calf? And he said, oh, uncle, I'm going to take it back to the village and there I'm going to fatten it, and in the two years when it will be big, then I'm going to sell it for a profit. And Ramakrishna said, my God, so much calculation, and he fell over in a faint. And uh, <laughs> because he wasn't able to think of the morrow, uh, and to think of two years ahead, that you're going to do this, do this, do this, in order to get a profit in two years, that was too much for him. And so a person of such a, an elevated mind, of such spontaneous renunciation, such uh, spontaneous simplicity and purity, 
he couldn't think in terms of, well, what does the world need now? What, what is the direction history is going, and how do I apply this power to the needs of history? And how will things be 300 years from now, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now? And so he needed someone like Vivekananda uh, who could apply his mind to the needs of society and, and direct to that power which Ramakrishna had brought uh, for the sake of society. And so again, Vivekananda is not to be just an icon sitting on an altar. Even none of the great uh, world teachers are worthy, or, or, or uh, uh, not, they're worthy of that, but they're not, they shouldn't be restricted to that because as soon as we make them an icon and just put them up on the wall and uh, pay our respects, then we say, okay, I paid my respects now, now I can go about my business and do what uh, I was doing. Uh, but no, as soon as we make of an icon of them, then we've made something static, something which is safe. As Holy Mother said, nowadays people love to worship Sri Ramakrishna because he just sits uh, on the altar and accepts what, uh, whatever you do and whatever, whatever treatment you give to him. They should have come when he was alive and seen how difficult it was to serve him then. Uh, it's very easy to serve a picture seated, seated on, the, uh, on the altar. And so, um, and so again with Vivekananda. So because he came in order to give direction to society, uh, to change the very, uh, the, the, the very foundations of uh, human thought and the thought of civilization, and he, him in particular, we, uh, it does us good to try to understand what it is that he was trying to do, what it is that he did, what it is he was trying to do. And so let me say that, uh, admit that to completely understand Vivekananda is beyond any, any of us. Even his brother disciples said that they couldn't understand him uh, beyond a certain point. Uh, but there are, th there are things that we can understand and then we can leave it to uh, uh, history for other things that he did to be revealed in time. But uh, there are certain things that we can, we can point to now. And so when thinking about his legacy, what it is that he left for us, one of the first things that comes to mind is just himself, that he left himself and his power and his example and his teachings. Uh, the wonderful life that he lived, as Ramakrishna had lived his wonderful life before that. Uh, Sister Christine, one of Vivekananda's American disciples, German-American disciples, uh, who followed him to India and spent many years uh, serving uh, the uh, women and especially uh, young girls in, uh, in India. Uh, she said in her reminiscences, a very beautiful statement at the beginning of her reminiscences of Vivekananda. Now and then, at long intervals of time, a being finds his way to this planet, who is unquestionably a wanderer from another sphere, who brings with him to this sorrowful world some of the glory, the power, the radiance of the far distant region from which he came. He walks among men, but he is not at home here. He is a pilgrim, a stranger. He tarries but a night. He shares the life of those about him, enters into their joys and sorrows, rejoices with them, mourns with them. But through it all, he never forgets who he is, whence he came, or what the purpose of his coming. He never forgets his divinity. He remembers that he is the great, the glorious, the majestic self, he knows that he came from that ineffable, supernal region which has no need of the sun or moon, for it is illumined by the light of lights. Such a one I have seen, I have heard, I have revered. At his feet I have laid, at his feet I have laid my soul's devotion. 
Such a being is beyond all comparison, for he transcends all ordinary standards and ideals. Others may be brilliant. His mind is luminous, for he had the power to put himself into immediate contact with the source of all knowledge. He is no longer limited to the slow processes to which ordinary human beings are confined. Others may be great. They are great only compared with those in their own class. Others may be good, powerful, gifted, having more of goodness, more power, more of genius than their fellow men. It is only a matter of comparison. A saint is more holy, more pure, more single-minded than ordinary men. But with Vivekananda, there could be no comparison. He was in a class by himself. He belonged to another order. He was not of this world, he was a radiant being who had descended from another, a higher sphere for a definite purpose. One might have known that he wouldn't stay long. Is it to be wondered at that nature itself rejoices in such a birth, that the heavens open and angels sing paeans of praise? Blessed is the country in which he was born. Blessed are they who lived on this earth at the same time. And blessed, thrice blessed, are the few who sat at his feet. And so also, blessed are the places where Vivekananda came. Blessed are the places where he spent time. Uh, it's uh, something that the whole world at some time in the future will recognize the greatness of his having come, having been born here among humankind. And then those countries where he spent time, where he walked, where he met the people, where he talked with people, they'll rejoice in particular. And uh, 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 in future, the places where he came will become places of pilgrimage. You find that already happening. You find people uh, coming, uh, when they come to America, if they're devotees of Vivekananda, they want to go and see the places uh, where he stayed, see the places where he spoke. People going to India want to go and see the places where, uh, uh, where he lived, the places where he uh, walked, the places where he uh, visited. And so in time, the places where he uh, did come, again, will become places of pilgrimage, holy places. And so we are extremely fortunate in this country to have so many places that he visited, so many places where he spent time, so many uh, uh, places where he gave his best, his best energies were spent in this country uh, and in India, of course, but his years of greatest health were spent here. And so uh, there was a, a tremendous um, outpouring of his love, an outpouring of his knowledge, and an outpouring of his spirituality, which happened here, including uh, Los Angeles. We know from uh, modern psychology, and we know from experience, uh, the extreme importance of uh, the early influences in the life of a child. Uh, we know from our own lives how the experiences as children uh, some of them uh, come as blessings which bless us for the rest of our lives and some come as problems which we have to spend the rest of our lives working out. And so the influences on uh, uh, a child, even uh, uh, prenatal influences as well as postnatal influences are extremely important. And the same is true of nations, the same is true of a, of a society. And so it's uh, extremely uh, important that uh, he came to this country when it was in its infancy, that he came and spent his best years when uh, this country was in its infancy. 
Yes, the country itself hasn't awakened to that uh, blessing, and the vast majority of people are completely unaware of it, but the, the influence is there all the same. And in time, I feel convinced that that will begin to its exert itself. The influence on the world in general and on countries like ours where he spent uh, so much of his uh, time. Uh, uh, na because nations are like individuals. They have their birth, they have their growth and development, they have periods of stability, and then uh, they have their decline. With the exception of India and China, all ancient uh, civilizations have come, risen, and then uh, declined and died. Uh, and so the fact that, again, he came and spent some of his best energies here in this country is a tremendous, uh, a tremendous wealth that in time we will recognize and, and um, honor. Moving among the people, talking to the people, sowing seeds again of his thought, sowing seeds of his power, sowing seeds of his spirituality. It's uh, believed in India, and I believe it also, that uh, a person seeing an illumined soul, even if they have no spiritual inclination and don't know who it is that they're seeing, that just seeing an illumined soul sows a seed in the deeper mind. As we all know, again from modern psychology, uh, the larger mind perceives much more than the surface mind. The surface mind uh, perceives a little bit, but the larger mind, the unconscious and subconscious regions of the mind, they perceive much more than registers in the conscious. And so it's believed that a person seeing an illumined soul, even if they don't know who it is that they've seen, that produces a tremendous uh, 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 samskara uh, uh, in the mind, where something within them, something within the deeper mind, knows what it is that they're perceiving. It sows a seed, and in time that seed sprouts, in this life perhaps, or in a future life, uh, that, uh, 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 that sprouts into spiritual longing for that which they've seen. And so the fact that Vivekananda came to this country again in its infancy, uh, just walked in the country, talked in the country, lived here, met with people, talked with people, that's a tremendous uh, fact. So among uh, the elements of his legacy, that's something that we in particular should, uh, should uh, uh, honor. And uh, talking about other more specific things that he left besides just the impression of his being here. Well, let me back up to that for a moment and say one more thing. And that is that uh, it's not that a great soul like Vivekananda just uh, lives and leaves an impression and then dies and he's gone and the impression is there, but, uh, but he's gone. Oh no, Vivek a person like Vivekananda, they leave a living impression, a living seed, not just a memory. Why is it that we observe the birthdays of people like Ramakrishna and Vivekananda? It's not because they lived and then died and it was nice that they were here and so we observe their birthdays as an anniversary of something that happened uh, long back that uh, we're very happy happened. No, it's because they're still alive, they're still active, they're still conscious, they're still responsive, as many people have experienced. And so uh, in honoring his birth, we're honoring a living uh, presence. Vivekananda used to say that where, he said here in Pasadena, when he was staying at the house, which is now Swamiji House, uh, he told the Mead sisters that wherever I go, uh, wherever I stay, I always leave something behind. And there he left behind his pipe. But more significant than the things that he would leave behind, uh, he left behind uh, his living presence, <clears throat> his living power. And uh, so that continues. And so again, coming back to uh, more specific things, Swamiji himself talked about the dis difficulty of uh, the task that he uh, had before him, the task which was set for him, 
whether we think of it as a task he had set for himself or a task which Ramakrishna had set for him or a task that Mother Kali had given to him, it doesn't matter. In a beautiful letter he wrote to Alasinga Paramal, one of his Tamilian devotees, written in, in February of 1896. He says, to put the Hindu ideas into English and then to make out of dry philosophy and intricate mythology and queer startling psychology a rigid religion which shall be easy, simple, popular, and at the same time meet the requirements of the highest minds <clears throat> is a task only those can understand who have attempted it. The dry abstract Advaita must become living, poetic in everyday life. Out of hopelessly intricate mythology must come concrete moral forms, and out of bewildering yogiism must come the most scientific and practical psychology. And all this must be put in a form so that a child may grasp it. That is my life's work. The Lord alone knows how far I shall succeed. And when you look at Swamiji, that is what he did. That is what he did. He took uh, this vast system of uh, Hinduism uh, and gave a restatement of it. No, he didn't create something new. There's a popular term nowadays, especially among scholars, um, Neo-Vedanta that is new Vedanta, neo Vedanta. And they say that that which Vivekananda taught and others like him was not real Vedanta, it was neo Vedanta. He created something new. Uh, and some of them, and usually it's used as a pejorative, it's used critically, and some of them say that he was trying to make Hinduism uh, palatable to his Western audiences, and so he changed everything and made a neo Vedanta. Well, no, there's no such thing as neo Vedanta, unless Vedanta itself you call neo Vedanta. In Shankara, Shankaracharya's time, what he taught was a, uh, was a restatement of ancient truths. What before him Godapada had taught, his grand teacher, was a restatement of ancient truths. What the Upanishads themselves taught was a, a restatement of truths. Uh, what Madhusudana Saraswati later taught was a restatement of truths. What uh, Sri Chaitanya, what the great uh, teachers all through the Indian tradition all of them adapted the ancient truths to the circumstances of the time, and that's what Vivekananda did. And so if uh, you want to use the term Neo-Vedanta, it should be applied to Vedanta in general, because Vedanta is always Neo-Vedanta. It's a living system. But Western scholars in particular, they want Hinduism to be something dead and static that you could have defined. Okay, this is what uh, Vedanta is as defined by Shankaracharya and his disciples. That's uh, Vedanta. And if anybody touches that, uh, then that's not, not legitimate. Not a legit, legitimate according to whom? According to scholars. Uh, Vedanta is a living system. Uh, it's a, a, a living being. If it stops eating, if it stops assimilating, if it stops assimilating influences, if it stops, stops responding to its environment, it's dead. And so with a religious tradition. All living religious traditions are living. They're responding. And Vedanta in particular uh, has a tremendous dynamism within it, an openness to truth, an openness to, um, uh, to discovery. And so that's, uh, if you want to call that Neo-Vedanta, then the Vedanta itself, again, is Neo-Vedanta. So what Vivekananda did was not to create something new. What he did was to give a renewed vision of the implications of the ancient truths. He went, in fact, in many ways, you can see how he went back to the original truths of the Upanishads and emphasized them rather than later uh, accretions to Hinduism, uh, which uh, are part of what uh, Western scholars call uh, traditional Vedanta, that which they want to protect. 
uh, Vivekananda actually in uh, uh, point after point, he goes back to the original insight of the Upanishads, uh, the, uh, the Vedas and the Upanishads, and reaffirmed those ancient truths and their initial purity and got rid of the later superstitions which had uh, accumulated uh, over those, uh, those teachings. And so he went and saw the, one of the geniuses of Vivekananda was that he saw uh, Vedanta as a tradition of principles, not a tradition of personalities. And Vedanta was never that, a tradition of personalities. It has, there are more saints and incarnations and seers uh, and great souls in Hinduism than in any tradition in the world. And Hinduism never said, well, this is the last. This is the end of the, uh, the prophets. This is the end of the incarnations, or this is the greatest of them all. No, it uh, had room for any number of the past and any number of the future. Uh, but Vivekananda saw also that Vedanta, by its very nature, was a religion of principles. And so he always pointed to the principles and said the personalities should be seen as expressions, living expressions of, uh, of principle. Otherwise, we get caught up in the personalities. Otherwise, we take a great uh, teacher, someone who came for the benefit of all beings, and make them the head of a little sect, and say that only if you worship the head of my sect can you be saved. Only if you accept what he said and exactly as he uh, uh, said it can you be saved. No, Vivekananda saw the tremendous harm that had been done to the world, the destruction of whole countries, the destruction of whole cultures, which has come out of that type of narrow attitude. He came to destroy that type of uh, narrowness and showed Again, that Vedanta was a religion of principles, uh, principles which uh, can apply within any religion without destroying that religion's own uh, individuality. And uh, so again, he took the, uh, this uh, vast, vast uh, system, which as he says, uh, uh, the dry philosophy, intricate, intricate mythology, queer startling psychology, uh, 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 bewildering yogiism, etc., and made out of it, or not made out of it, he pointed to the principles within it. And uh, another thing that he did, which was a tremendous uh, contribution, was that by pointing to the principles and saying this is the essence of the Vedanta tradition, he universalized it. Before Vivekananda, Hinduism was an ethnic religion. You were born a, a Hindu. You didn't become a Hindu. You were born a Hindu. But he showed that the t teachings of Vedanta are universal. It's because of him that someone like me can uh, 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 call himself a Vedantin, uh, because he opened it uh, to the world and showed that this is a religion of truth, not a religion of ethnicity. It's a religion of truth, a religion which respects truth. And, uh, 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 and he pointed to the fact that at one time Hinduism also had been more than an ethnic religion. How was it that in ancient times Hinduism spread from the westernmost uh, regions of Afghanistan uh, and even beyond all the way to Indonesia, through Southeast Asia? How could that have happened if Hinduism were a purely ethnic religion, if you had to be born a Hindu? It wasn't that the Hindus multiplied so much that they pushed everybody else out and occupied all of those countries. No, it was, it's, uh, it's uh, spread under the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, its own uh, uh, inner power. Uh, and so Vivekananda once again removed those ethnic restrictions, something which India itself needs. One of the uh, tragedies of modern Indian history is that uh, at the time when, the, at the, uh, during the waves of Muslim invasions, there was a, a point in which uh, Kashmir became uh, uh, predominantly uh, uh, Muslim, and many Kashmiris uh, 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 converted to Islam, some under force, some, uh, some willingly, some because they uh, wanted it. Uh, 
uh, preferred it. Uh, but then a few hundred years ago, I forget, some of you pr probably know, but I, I heard uh, something like 300 years, but I don't have that confirmed. That may be wrong. But anyway, some, uh, some uh, significant time ago, uh, a large community of the Muslims of Kashmir came to the Kashmiri Brahmins and said that uh, uh, we left our mother religion for Islam for such and such reasons. Now we want to come back into the mother faith. Can we come back in uh, to the fold of Hinduism? And the Kashmiri Brahmin said, Kadapina, Kadapina, never, never, you'll never be allowed back in. And now those are the people who are suffering, not they, their innocent uh, descendants who are suffering so much, who have been pushed out of Kashmir. Because of that narrowness, because of that, uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, ethnocentricity, that idea which is common among people everywhere in the world, that we are the chosen people. And so um, Vivekananda removed that. He removed that ethnic uh, restriction, which uh, says that no, unless you're born uh, into the fold, you can't uh, can't come into it. And he pointed to the uh, uh, to the uh, uh, universals uh, behind the uh, tradition and emphasized those. So another thing that Vivekananda did was that he always appealed to experience. He didn't appeal to faith. He didn't say. These are the teachings, and you have to accept them. If you accept them, then you'll be saved. If you don't accept them, then you'll be damned. No, he never said that. And of course, Hinduism in general doesn't say that, and it never has said that. It's not a creedal religion. Uh, there are even some people in the modern world, and largely Westerners who have taken up Hinduism, who have tried to turn it into a creedal religion. They've written creeds and catechisms and said, this is what a Hindu believes. Well, no, don't, uh, that's uh, contrary to the spirit of Hinduism, and it's certainly contrary to what Vivekananda said. And so Vivekananda's appeal was to experience, that uh, uh, why are the Vedas true? The Vedas are true because they're experientially true, uh, because they're factual, not because uh, some god came and revealed them and said, this is what I want you to believe, no because they're founded in uh, universal experience, reproducible experience. And um, uh, so he and Ramakrishna both they pointed to the experiential nature of religion. Don't believe something, and here he was an echo both of the Upanishads and of the later uh, Buddha. Uh, uh, he said, don't uh, believe uh, some text because your ancestors said these are true. No, examine them, find out if they're true, and find out if they're beneficial for others. If they're true and if they're beneficial, then uh, take them up and give your life to them. But don't believe anything just because somebody tells you to believe it. No, believe it because you've examined it and you found it true. Uh, Sister Nivedita said uh, once that uh, with Vivekananda, you felt that he was completely uh, devoted to truth, truth itself. She said so much so that one felt that, if, that he was a Vedantin because that's where he found the, uh, a, a, a beautiful expression of truth. But if he had found truth leading outside of Vedanta, then he would have followed truth and left Vedanta. And so it was truth that he was uh, uh, after. Uh, and that's because truth is that which can be experienced, that which can be reproducibly experienced. And that's especially important in the modern age where if you're not born, if you're born into a system, then it's much easier to believe in certain uh, traditions. You say that, well, it's written here in my Bible, it's written here in my Quran, it's written here in my Vedas, uh, and so that's why you should believe it. Uh, well, if you're not born into that system, uh, that has no weight at all. If somebody comes here and meets people on the street and says, well, you have to uh, believe this because it says so in the Vedas. Uh, well, I won't say what most people would say here, because <laughs> we're in church. But, <laughs> but uh, 
that, that has no weight. What does have weight and what should have weight is because this is experientially true. If you test these, you'll find that this is a higher truth than the truth that you uh, presently experience. And so again, this appeal to experience is especially true, especially important. His uh, universalizing of religion itself, not just of Vedanta, but of religion itself, is extremely important, <coughs> extremely needed for the modern world, where there's so many tensions in the world based on uh, uh, religious mythologies, conflicting mythologies, conflicting claims to uh, to, to territory, conflicting uh, ideas about uh, 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 identities and so forth. Uh, he took us back to the Vedic original idea of religion, uh, the Vedic idea of religion, and that is, as he said, it was not until the arise, uh, arising of Buddhism that in India there was an idea of different religions. Before that there was just religion. There were different ways of doing it. There was the way that the Vedic peoples did it, and they recognized that there were other non-Vedic peoples who did religion in another way. But there was just religion uh, and many ways to do it, as there is science and many ways to do science. Uh, uh, biology is not a sect. It's a way of doing science. Physics is not a different sect competing with biology, though among, sometimes among scientists uh, it seems sectarian, uh, but it's not. Uh, and so religion is a way of approaching the sacred, and there are many ways of approaching the sacred, of, uh, ways of going into the heart of uh, reality and finding the heart of reality. There are many ways of doing it. And so what we call different religions are different ways of approaching the topic of, uni of universal religion. As Swamiji said, universal religion already exists. We just have to allow it to exist. We have to stop claiming territory which is not ours, saying that uh, this which is uh, our territory within the field of religion is the only true territory. You that are outside the, uh, the fence are all wrong, and uh, you're going to the bad place. Those of us inside the fence, uh, we're going to the good place. Why? Because we say so. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, uh, so uh, Vivekananda universalized religion itself, not just Vedanta, but religion itself, and showed the, uh, that universal religion already exists. We don't have to create something. We don't have to take the things that we like most from the different religions, mix them together, and create something new. No, we just have to allow that which already exists to exist. And that was much more common in the ancient world than we would recognize today from the centuries and uh, uh, millennia of religious strife. When the uh, uh, Greeks under Alexander and when the Romans went into different uh, countries and saw different cultures, uh, then they would uh, see the gods and, uh, and worships and uh, things in different uh, uh, places and say, oh, the one that we worship as Jupiter here, they worship as Shiva. The one that we worship as Hercules here, they worship as Krishna and so forth. There was this natural way of looking to similarity, uh, looking to the universality of the religious spirit, that religion is something which is spontaneous, that rises spontaneously in the hu human heart, and it's a, a spontaneous part of uh, human character. And so they recognized that and said, oh, what, the, what we worship this way here, they worship that way. Uh, but later came this idea that there's only one true God and everybody who doesn't believe in the true God uh, uh, should be destroyed or converted if, if possible. So Vivekananda again took us back to that original perception of religion as something universal. Um, another one of the tremendous uh, uh, elements of the legacy of Vivekananda was his pointing to the divinity of humankind, pointing to the divinity of all beings 
and especially he pointed to the divinity of humankind. Yes, he said that uh, every worm is a brother of the Nazarene. Yes, a worm also is uh, divine. Everything is divine. But why did he point particularly to humankind and said it's man that's to be worshipped? Meaning, of course, generic man. It's man that's to be worshipped. Why did he give that emphasis? Did he not care for animals? No, he said that as long as there is a one dog in my country who is hungry, my religion will be to feed that dog. Uh, but he gave emphasis to the worship of man, why? Because it's much harder to love man than it is to love animals. It's easy to love a dog, it's easy to love a cat, and that's good. I, have, uh, I love dogs myself, I love all kinds of animals, and that's good. It's not to criticize that, but that's much easier than hu loving human beings. Human beings uh, talk back, they disagree. <laughs> they, do, they do all kinds of irritating things. They don't go along with our plans. Uh, we come home and the dog wags his tail no matter what we've done. Even if we're a criminal, even if we're a murderer, the dog still wags his tail and licks us in the face. Uh, people don't do that. And so it's, uh, uh, luckily, <laughs> as far as licking in the face goes, but uh, the, um, uh, uh, it's much easier to, again, worship an animal than it is to worship human beings. And so Vivekananda taught us to look to the divinity of uh, all beings and particularly to human beings. And as we do that, if we internalize that idea, if we become convinced of the truth of it in the, in the first place, we should never do anything unless we're convinced of its truth. But if we're convinced of its truth and then we try to do it, we try to think that all beings are divine, yes, we'll come across irritating people still, we'll come across frustrating uh, situations, but gradually we'll begin to see that our perception is changing. We'll begin to see that uh, the, the human face brings us joy rather than bring, uh, bringing us irritation. The human face brings us a sense of upliftment rather than depression. And that's only because we've begin to, begun to see people as divine. And then we'll see that uh, that does much more for us uh, than just seeing divinity in a dog or a cat. Yes, that too is good. Swami Ashokananda, one of our great Swamis, who was in San Francisco for many years, uh, passed away many years ago, uh, almost 40 years ago this year. Uh, he had his first high spiritual experience by seeing the light of the divinity in the face of a cat. So yes, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but then he went on to try to see it in the human face as well. And uh, so when we can see that, uh, then we know that we've made a tremendous spiritual progress. Even when we begin to uh, feel a spontaneous love for humanity rising within us because of that changed attitude, then we'll know that we've made tremendous progress even long before there's anything like a vision or a, uh, or a um, transcendental experience. So that to pointing to the divinity of human beings, Swamiji said that he wanted to make an experiment. He said that many people tell me uh, that teaching humanity their divinity is dangerous. It'll make people egotistical. It'll cause uh, problems. Uh, and he admitted that yes, maybe there'll be some problems as people learn to internalize this idea. But in the long run, he said, if it's true, and he was sure it was true because he saw it, if it's true, it will do good. It will do great good to humanity. He said, look at the experiment which has gone on for thousands of years, teaching people that they're weak, that they're lowly, that they're no good. And look at the results, look at the world we have. Is this a successful experiment of that teaching? Well, it's time to take another attack. It's the time to try another experiment, teach human beings their divinity. Yes, in the beginning it might cause some misunderstanding, it might cause some egotism. But teaching, he said, teach people their divinity and teach the divinity of all beings. What is it that creates egotism? 
well, there are several things. Uh, egotism is actually a weakness, not a strength. But one of the things that uh, is an element of egotism, an inherent element in egotism, is comparison. I'm better than you are. Uh, actually, it's a weakness because it's usually based on the self-perception that I'm no good. And so then I have to project this idea of egotism in order to, uh, uh, to inflate my deflated self-sense. But it's all based on comparison. If I look on all beings as divine myself as well, then where is the comparison? It's not I'm divine and you're all uh, uh, pieces of garbage. No, I'm divine and you're divine. We're all divine. And so there's uh, no egotism in that. And so he said, it's time to make a new experiment, to teach everyone, men, women, children, uh, the poor, the rich, the educated, the uneducated, teach all of them. He said that uh, Advaita can be made so simple that I can teach a child of five to understand the Advaita. And that was the task he set before us, to make it practical, satisfying to the highest minds, and accessible to, to all minds. So another thing based on that idea of the divinity of all uh, that he emphasized over and over incessantly was the idea of strength. He said, uh, strength is uh, the medicine that the world needs. Strength is the medicine that the poor need when oppressed by the rich. Strength is the medicine needed by the ignorant when oppressed by the learned. Strength is the medicine needed by the weak when oppressed by the powerful. And strength is the medicine needed by sinners when oppressed by other sinners. And my own uh, conviction has always been that what Swamiji wanted to say, but he, was, he didn't say it because he knew it would be misunderstood, was uh, strength is this uh, medicine needed by sinners when oppressed by the pious, oppressed by the righteous, those who are righteous-minded. Uh, he didn't say, and he wouldn't have said, those who uh, the, the, is the medicine needed by the sinners when oppressed by saints, because a genuine saint, a genuine holy person, doesn't oppress. But uh, certainly they are, they, they are oppressed by the, uh, the, the righteous, the, uh, the pious. And I'll put in a plug for the moral majority here, too. <laughs> so, uh, so he emphasized uh, strength. It's the, uh, strength is the medicine that the uh, world needs. He, uh, uh, he said that uh, uh, the teaching of humility had done great harm to uh, humanity. He said, I don't teach humility. I teach samadarshitva, that is, same-sightedness, as taught in the Gita. I think we have to understand that when he says, I don't teach humility because people who knew Vivekananda said that he was the embodiment of humility himself. What they meant was he was the embodiment of trans, uh, transparency. There was no ego inside of him. Uh, and that's what genuine humility is trying to get at. What he was criticizing in humility was the idea of teaching people that you're no good, you're worms. Don't try to act too big because you're not big, you're no good. Don't, uh, don't try to act smart because you're not smart, you're stupid. Don't try to act uh, uh, like you're a big shot because you're not, you're a small shot, you're, you're not worth anything, no. Uh, that was the type of humility he was trying to get over, uh, trying to overcome, trying to destroy. The humility which says, well, I'm a worm, I'm no good. How could I ever try to, uh, to do something uh, important? I'm no good. It's, uh, and uh, something I've even heard people say, well, there's some things God just doesn't want us to know, so we shouldn't even inquire into them. We shouldn't inquire into them. God doesn't, who told you God doesn't want you to know something? Uh, if there's something to be known, then, uh, the, the, then it's, uh, it's a knowledge and it's sacred. Uh, and so that type of humility is what was what Swamiji was uh, knocking on the head and why he said, I teach same-sightedness, which is true humility. That is, as I said, true humility is transparency, not projecting something about myself which is different from what I am and what I feel, not trying to project myself at all and uh, make an impression uh, uh, about myself. 
Uh, and that use one of the qualities you see in genuine holy people is that they're transparent. And uh, so some darshitva, same-sidedness, means seeing the same divinity everywhere, as Krishna says in the Gita, seeing the same divinity, seeing the same Brahman, uh, within man and woman, within rich and poor, high caste and low caste, uh, and outcast, uh, dogs, cows, uh, grass, everything, seeing the same Brahman manifested everywhere. That's uh, same-sightedness. So um, that's what uh, Swamiji uh, taught was that, uh, uh, that type of strength, that type of strength which is not egotism, but that strength which comes from being founded on our own uh, inner divinity. What a tremendous difference it would make if people grew up, and that was what he meant by an experiment, teaching people their divinity, teaching people to manifest strength. If we grew up not hearing that you're no good, you're weak, uh, you're not worthy, uh, you're a sinner, you're guilty, you're bad, etc. If instead of hearing that from childhood, we grew up hearing that within you is all power. Yes, you'll make mistakes, that's okay, learn to get over them, uh, but they're just mistakes, uh, keep going, uh, 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 rise up. Uh, that uh, you, uh, within you is all power, within you is all purity, within you is all spirituality. Everything is there that you need inside. You just have to learn to manifest it. And yes, you'll make mistakes. Mistakes are okay. That's part of, uh, that's part of life. Uh, but you'll learn how to get over mistakes. If we heard that rather than the other uh, message which we hear from all sides from the time that we're, uh, we come into the world, so, um, uh, so again, that's why he said, go from house to house, door to door. And here he wasn't speaking, knocking on the doors, ask, asking people if they found their personal savior in Ramakrishna or anything like that. He meant to go from door to door. He, he meant it figuratively. Uh, but actually, in an active sense, yes, he meant it literally, uh, to teach people their divinity, uh, teach people, teach everyone. He said it'll make a cobbler a better cobbler, a fisherman a better fisherman, a lawyer a better lawyer, a student a better student, a doctor a better uh, doctor. See, he didn't say it'll make a spiritual aspirant a better spiritual aspirant, no. He said that also, but he didn't limit it to that. He said it'll make a cobbler a better cobbler. It'll make a fisherman a better fisherman. He wasn't talking about saints or uh, aspirants to uh, sainthood. He was talking about ordinary people. If ordinary people hear this message and uh, if society internalizes it, what a tremendous difference that would make in society. What a difference it would make to humanity. Again, if we grew up believing in our own divinity, believing that everything that I need is here, I just have to learn to manifest it. Yes, I haven't manifested it. I have to learn to manifest it, and I can learn to manifest it. Little by little, the time factor is according to my ability to manifest it that I have brought into this world, but I can increase that ability to manifest it faster and faster, higher and higher. So let me work on that. Let me try to do that. So that was all part of his experiment. Another thing that he did, which was extremely important in the modern age and beyond, was showing the spirituality inherent in life itself. He didn't come to teach this is sacred and this is secular. He didn't come to say that the, this is, uh, the, this is uh, the religious life, you stay over here, but uh, stay away from this because this is secular life. No, he didn't. He came and showed the sacred nature of life itself, the sacred nature of all uh, uh, human pursuits. <clears throat> he used to lament, man the infinite dreamer, dreaming finite, dreams. He limited the, lamented the fact that uh, we limit ourselves by dreaming dr dreams of littleness. He said, if uh, again, coming back to the theme of uh, strength, 
there was once a man in India who came to him, an old man who came to him and said, Swamiji, what should we do to uh, uh, become spiritual? And of course, he expected Swamiji to say, well, meditate, offer worship, uh, pray, uh, etc." But Swamiji said, can you lie? Can you steal? You'll be a much better person if you can do one of these than just being a, a good for nothing. He saw that the man was somebody who was steeped in tamas, steeped in laziness, inertia. He said, you'll be a better person if you can learn to steal and lie than you will just by doing nothing. Learn to do something. And as Swamiji explained, he didn't, he didn't, it didn't mean that it's good for people to go out and be thieves, etc. But yes, that's better than being nothing. He said, if you're going to be a thief, then uh, rob the king's ransom. Don't be a petty pickpocket. Go after something big. Don't be small. And he said that uh, uh, strength is the medicine that the world needs. If, you, if it's strength that you need, go down into hell to get it. But come back with strength. Whatever, what other world teacher has ever said that? to go down into hell to get strength if you need it. Other world teachers, even the great Buddha, Buddha said, be fearful of wrongdoing. Be fearful of wrongdoing. And other great world teachers similarly have said, be fearful of making a mistake, be fearful of going against God, be fearful of God himself, etc. But Vivekananda said, give up all fear. Go down even into hell to get strength if that's what you need, but come back with strength. And so, um, uh, so again, coming, to the spirit, coming back to the spirituality inherent in all life, he saw all, all beings as inherently spiritual, and he saw life itself as spiritual. It said that uh, to hear Vivekananda talk on any subject was to marvel in the way that he could show the uh, spirituality inherent in everything. Swamiji was in, interested, he was interested in human history. He was interested in science. He was interested in the arts, interested in music. He was interested in linguistics. Uh, he was interested in all fields of human endeavor because he saw within all of that the divinity of humankind trying to express itself. He had great admiration for people that normally we look down on, like uh, 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 Genghis Khan and uh, Napoleon, uh, not because he approved of bloodletting and uh, war making and all, and all of that, but because he saw that uh, in them he could see a uh, misdirected uh, 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 inclination towards unity. That they were seeking unity. They were misdirecting it and trying to create a, a physical unity of empire. But he saw that the impulse was true. The impulse was good. And that he, he saw within them this tremendous manifestation of power, which if they could channel that power in, a, in the right direction uh, and purify the impulse, which again was good in itself, then what tr tremendous things could be done. And uh, so Swamiji told uh, uh, Mary Hale in a beautiful letter, one of his many beautiful letters to Mary Hale, he said to take up something, take up science, take up art, take up religion, take up social service, take up something but be great, do, do something. He said it doesn't matter what you take up, take up something and, uh, and do something. If you read his conversations with his disciple Sharachandra Chakravarti, a, a great uh, disciple of his, uh, Bangla, uh, what we now call a Bangladeshi at that time from East Bengal, uh, he tells him over and over again, do something. He said, uh, 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 do something for humanity. He even tried to get him to uh, export saris or something to, uh, to the West. Uh, he said, that, uh, do something in, in order to, instead of just, uh, just uh, wasting your life away by, in, uh, 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 without a higher uh, ideal, without uh, some, sort of, uh, some sort of manifestation of uh, power and greatness. So um, Swamiji 
saw the spirituality inherent in life, saw the spirituality inherent in all endeavors, and saw that we human beings and all beings are at different levels of development, and all levels of development are to be respected. All of them are to be honored. And so it doesn't matter, he, again, with his disciple Chandra Chakravarti, uh, whenever you would ask him, what, are you, what do you want to do? He'd say, I just want to sit and study the scriptures and spend my time with people like you. And Swamiji tried to inspire him to do something bigger than just just that, not because Swamiji was against studying the scriptures. No, he, he inspired his disciples to study the scriptures, but he wanted something more. Even if he became an uh, uh, import-export uh, import uh, 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 person, businessman, that itself Swamiji thought would be a good thing to do. So Swamiji saw not only the spirituality inherent in ordinary life, but he saw the greatness in, inherent in ordinary life as well. And that's what led him to say beautiful statements like, uh, every worm is the brother of the Nazarene. Every worm is the brother of the Nazarene. Uh, Nazarene, of course, for those of you who didn't grow up in, in uh, the Christian tradition, means uh, Jesus. So every worm is the brother of Jesus. He said, <clears throat> uh, again, that more and more I see the true greatness <clears throat> There's the greatness of the worm who goes about his daily duties, his daily trials every day, uh, quietly, unobtrusively. He said, uh, when you see a mother cat nursing her kittens, bow down and worship. For where there is love, there is God. So again, seeing that greatness inherent everywhere and the spirituality inherent everywhere. Uh, he always emphasized that which was best and that which was uh, most uh, uh, noble in people. He didn't play off of people's weaknesses. He didn't play off of people's fears. Well, be afraid of this, be afraid of that. Do this because otherwise there's punishment waiting for you. No, he never played off of people's weaknesses. He always uh, fed people's strengths. Uh, he used to say that uh, don't judge a tree by the number of rotten fruit it produces judge a tree by the number of good fruit it produces. And that's so contrary to our human, uh, natural human tendency. We see an apple tree that uh, may have uh, 10 bushels of good apples, and we see one rotten apple, and we point to the rotten apple. Uh, and uh, so Swamiji said, no, judge a tree by the good fruit that it produces. Uh, of course, meaning that as an analogy to human beings. Uh, see people by what good they, that they've done. It said that his disciple, Josephine McLeod, who always said she was not a disciple but a friend. Um, but he said about her uh, that, uh, or uh, it was uh, uh, said about Josephine McLeod, I was told by Catherine Whitmarsh Prasanna, uh, who was part of the larger family that she was in. Uh, she, uh, Prasanna told me that one of the remarkable things about Josephine McLeod was that uh, she always uh, saw greatness in the other person. Whenever she would meet another person, she would be interested in them. And Josephine used to attribute that to what she learned from Swami Vivekananda. She said that Swami Vivekananda would find everybody interesting, uh, would find something to learn from everybody. And so Josephine McLeod carried that out in detail in her life. Everybody that she met, she wanted to know something about them, wanted to know something that, uh, 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 about what, the, what they knew, what they had experienced, what they had seen. She always felt that she had something to learn from everybody. And so that was part of Swamiji's very uh, being. There are other things I could mention. I'll just mention briefly a couple of other ideas uh, that Swamiji left, one of, as, as his legacy. One was a new view of work. The so-called Protestant work, work ethic was something which led to 
the greatness of Western civilization, yes, much of, uh, much of the greatness of modern Western civilization came through the so-called Protestant work ethic. Uh, but that work ethic, we can see on all sides that it no longer works. It's dead, and there's nothing to replace it. Uh, Karl Marx himself uh, saw that and said that uh, the foundation for why people should work has to change. And uh, Swami Vivekananda also saw that the very foundations, like the work ethic in other directions also, the foundations of society, the, the foundational ideas, the principles on which society had been founded, that they had served a purpose for hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years, but they were dying. And the new way of looking at things that science has brought to us and many other movements in society have brought to us the old way of looking at things no longer works. Our old ideas of time and space, our old ideas of causation, our old ideas of why we should do what we do, our old ideas of work, our old ideas of self, our old ideas of other, those no longer work. They're no longer serving a purpose. And you see all over the world society degrading because of that. And so Swamiji came, one of the things he did was to give a new foundation for society, which society hasn't yet recognized, but it's beginning to recognize. And one of those areas that he contributed greatly was in the uh, view of work, why it is that we should work, what the nature of work is, the purpose of work, how work affects us. He showed, well, let me st step back and say that Karl Marx said that work should be self-actualization. The problem was that with uh, Marx, because he was a materialist, believer in what he called dialectical materialism, but basically a materialist, this is what's real, Anything other than matter is unreal. Uh, what kind of self-actualization can you have if you're just a piece of meat, if you're just nothing but uh, molecules, if you're nothing but dead and sentient matter vibrating a little bit, and that's all that you are? What kind of self-actualization can dead, dull, and sentient matter have? It's not much. Uh, but uh, Swamiji uh, would agree that, yes, the purpose of work is self-actualization, but he showed it from a spiritual perspective and saw how it is that, as he said, work is uh, every blow that is given to the soul from which fire is struck from the soul of uh, human beings. And uh, uh, in uh, ways beyond what I can give now at the end of time, end of our time today, uh, he gave a new view of work. And so, uh, again, to conclude, so there are many other things that could be said about Swamiji's con contributions, but we've talked about some of the major contributions he gave. I've always compared Swamiji to an ocean liner, or not an ocean liner, an uh, oil tanker. An oil tanker that's laden uh, with oil, a huge uh, uh, oil tanker, uh, has so much momentum when it's in motion that if the tanker needs to change course in the ocean, it has to plan miles ahead before it begins to change course. You don't just say, okay, turn right here, okay, turn the, turn the wheel and the, uh, the ocean liner turns. It takes miles and miles to shift course in an ocean, ocean liner. So you have to plan that miles in advance. And so with society, society is far, far larger than an ocean liner, of course, and the uh, forces, the dynamics, inner dynamics of society and the external forces on society are so huge that movement of society is slow. And so Swami Vivekananda, my conviction is that he came with the central purpose of giving a new direction to society, giving a new foundation for society and a new direction to the dynamics of society. But it takes a long time for that to take effect. We're beginning to see that happening even now. Uh, you see in the religious circles, 
around the world in different religious circles, still a minority of circles, but you see it. Here and there, almost spontaneously arising, this idea of the universality of religion, this idea that all religions are true. It is springing up in spite of a great deal of resistance. Uh, you see the idea of the divinity of man in many Christian circles and uh, Christian uh, mystical circles and uh, liberal aspects of Christianity, that many people who are seeking for a new idea of human nature to stop seeing people as basically sinners, uh, but to see human beings and to see creation itself as divine. Within Christianity itself, there's a search for a new foundation for looking at human beings and looking at, uh, looking at nature. Uh, and in many different ways, in many different areas, you see this uh, new way of looking at humanity, this new way of looking at the world arising. And uh, so the ship of society is beginning to change course. And I am convinced, not that it matters in the larger picture, but convinced that in time, history will recognize that Vivekananda had a central role in that change of direction. It's only with long range view that you can begin to see causative forces, and especially as something which takes so much time. Uh, and so in, in time, I'm convinced that, uh, that, that, will be, that will be recognized. But whether it's recognized or not, it doesn't matter. I'm convinced that the, uh, of the fact of Swami Vivekananda's tremendous influence on, on society, and that that uh, influence will continue. As he said himself, it may be that someday I will find it to, uh, good to get outside of the body, to cast it off like a worn out garment. But I shall not cease working. I shall continue working until every person knows that they are one with God. Om Madhuvata Ritayate Madhuksharanti Sindhavaha Madhvir Nasanto Shadhi Madhunakta Mutoshasi Madhumat Parthivagum Rajaha Madhudyaurastunafita Madhumanovanaspatir Madhumagum Astu Suryaha Madhvir Gavo Bhavantunaha Madhu 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 For us who seek the truth, may the winds blow sweetly. May the rivers flow sweetly. May the herbs yield us sweetness. Sweet be the night and the break of day. Sweet be the very dust of the earth. May the heavens pour down sweetness upon us. May the trees, lords of the forest, bear us sweetness. May the sun shed its sweetness upon us. May all the directions pour forth sweetness. Om sweetness, sweetness, sweetness.